Good morning, everybody. Uh, such a privilege to be with you. And I'm so excited for this class. As you know, we're in between Pesach and Shavuot. So we're thinking about Torah. And our class today is about what constitutes Torah um, in this new age where social media becomes a platform for Torah, which has such a dramatic impact. So we're gonna see uh, two TikTok videos of a local teacher of Torah named Miriam Anzovin. And to put this in a context, you know, Michelle and Elias, Aliza, Dan and I do Talmud every, every Shabbos. And we get somewhere between 200 to 250 screens. And it's a 45 minute class. Miriam Anzovin does her, her Talmud on TikTok. It's by definition less than two minutes. And she gets many, many, many thousands of people per viewer at, per, per TikTok. And uh, Hartman did a podcast on this uh, on February 16th, in which it asked questions like, first of all, uh, why, is, why is her two minute TikTok drawing thousands of viewers? What's the secret sauce? And what does that mean to how we think of Torah and how it evolves uh, in our time? And Miriam Anzovin herself is in dialogue with Yehuda Kurtzer um, and a, um, a, another person named uh, David uh, Tzvi, uh, who is uh, David Tzvi Kalman, Kalman, who is like a Jewish media expert. Um, and they're in dialogue on it. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I want to, we'll start with, with the, with, with studying a piece of Talmud short that uh, she does a video, a TikTok uh, on that goes viral. And, it be, and also her TikTok video on this um, where she uses some profanity, she lays a few F words, et cetera, uh, in connection to a rabbi who does something that moderns would think was offensive creates a whole media storm. Uh, she's uh, celebrated and vilified uh, in, um, in the press, Jewish press especially. And we're gonna look at this, and I wanna just study the piece of Talmud and ask you what you think it's about, what you think of it. And then let's take a look at what she does and ask you what you think of her teaching and the, and the delta, the impact, the change that her teaching has on it. So. Without further ado, of course, gratitude to Brian and Amy for making all this possible. Brian, if you could please screen share Moed Katan 9b. Okay. So the context here is a context where the rabbis are talking about um, what kind of um, uh, makeup and adornments women are allowed to do and when they are allowed to do it, which already is problematic from a modern's point of view. Uh, we kind of, as moderns, don't really like the idea of male, males telling women when they can put on makeup and what kind of makeup. It, it feels patriarchal, it feels tone deaf, it feels gross, it feels not our moment or our religion. So it's already, we're kind of in a, in a deficit listening to a piece about men dictating the makeup habits of women. Uh, but that's our context. And now there's a particular story, which is the story that will occasion Miriam Anzovin's TikTok. So the wife of Rav Chista was adorning herself in front of her daughter-in-law during Cholomoed. So Cholomoed is, uh, we, we had Cholomoed last week. It's, it's Cholomoed itself is an ambiguous category. It's, it's an oxymoron. It's like George Carlin's uh, comedy album about jumbo shrimp. Is jumbo shrimp jumbo or shrimp? And you have the same complexity with Chol Moed. Uh, chol is not like Chol like all. Chol is, um, uh, is ordinary, uh, is profane. Um, and Hamoed is of the festival. So this is a time that is the ordinary days of otherwise a festival. So it's in, in our practice, let's say the first two days of Pesach and the last two days of Pesach are Moed. And then the intermediate four days are not exactly ordinary days, but they're not holy days. So it's an ambiguous category. And that has some com uh, implications for makeup, okay? So this wife of Rav Chista is putting makeup on, uh, on herself. 
in front of her daughter-in-law during this ambiguous time, Cholmoed, okay? At the time, Rav Huna Bar Chinana was sitting before Rav Chista. And while seated there, he said, they taught this ruling that a woman may make her adornments during Cholmoed only with respect to a young woman. But for an elderly woman, such adornment is not permitted. Thus, how could your wife make her adornments during Cholomoed since she is an older woman, right? So again, from a modern point of view, first of all, it's just kind of obnoxious that guys are dictating what makeup women can do, period. Like it's none of our business, right? Um, and then number two, here you have not just a general principle, but you have an actual um, a woman who is, who's in the room, who is unseen and spoken about. She's entirely an object, not a subject. And um, some rabbi, Rav Chuna Barchinana, is talking about her in her presence and talking about her in the presence of her husband and saying kind of uh, snarky things, like basically, wait a minute, you gotta be a young person to put on makeup and your wife is an older woman, she shouldn't be putting on makeup. So he's using should in a very gross way. Um, she shouldn't be doing this, okay? Then Rav Chista said to him, by God, even your mother and even your mother's mother and even a woman who is standing on her grave a woman of very advanced age, it is permitted for them to apply makeup during Chal Hamo'ed. For people say a 60-year-old is like a six-year-old in that they run to the sound of bells. Okay, that is this little piece of Talmud. And Brian, if you can come back to um, full screen. And what I want to do is, um, let's see if I can get um, my view here, gallery, gallery. Okay, great. So um, so that's the story. That is the piece of Talmud uh, from Moe Katan. Okay, now let's take a look at Miriam and Zovin. And my question to you is, um, why is it that this piece of TikTok Torah makes such a splash? Literally, this piece that you're about to hear on this dry, offensive piece of Talmud creates a media storm in the Jewish world. And what is it about her teaching that does that? So, uh, Brian, if you can show that TikTok, please. Shalom, friends. Welcome to Daf Reactions, Moe Katan 9. I am recording today from my makeup table in honor of Rav Chista. Yes. I am now a Rav Chista stan, ride or die. Let me tell you why. So in the daf, the Mishnah is discussing what types of glam routines are permitted on Cholomoed. Rav Chista's wife would absolutely put on makeup during this time, but he had a frenemy, Rav Huna Bar Chinana, who had the unmitigated chutzpah to sit down next to him and say, you know, only young women are allowed to put on makeup during Cholomoed. It's not for old women, like your wife, do you see my eye twitching? Now friends, I immediately put Ravuna Barchinana's name in my burn book, obviously. But so did Rav Chista. He said, and I am barely paraphrasing, oh my God, what the actual fuck is wrong with you, you misogynistic ageist dipshit. Even your mother and your mother's mother, even a woman standing at the edge of her grave, if she wants to put on makeup, she can. If a woman feels joy in putting on makeup, it doesn't matter when iota, how old they are, how dare you? People, I'm Kvelling. I'm Miriam, here in 2022. And I'm Kvelling over the actions of a man who died in 320 CE. That's the power of Dafyomi. What a fucking legend. Okay, now, um, she got many more followers than Michelle and Eliza and Elias and Dan and I have ever gotten. And she got articles in the press in New York and Jerusalem. Um, I'd love your reactions to her piece of Talmud. 
and and ask you what is it how do you explain that that clip went viral that that clip generated so much intense interest and what do you think about it and is that net net a good thing for torah and for the jewish people so um would love your comments and um feel free to either show me that you want to talk by using the you know the reactions that show that you want to talk or else you can send in a chat that you want to talk and i would love a real conversation on this and then we'll see what the hartman podcast does with it as well um what is it about this that is uh it, it generates thousands of viewers anyone Let's start. Let's let's analyze. Let's put on your uh, your your analyzing cap. Why is she getting thousands of viewers? What are the factors here? Help me out here. Can somebody speak? You're not a shy crowd. I'll, I'll speak. I'll speak until somebody interrupts me. How's that? Right. Okay. All right. Amy, we'll start off with you, and then I got Marty, Carol, and Steve. Thank you, Amy. You know what? Start with Marty, Carol, and Steve. I didn't see them. Okay. Brian, Marty, Carol, and Steve. Marty, why and uh, why why does she get thousands of followers? And what did you think of her tour? I don't know why she gets uh, thousands of followers, <laughs> um, but uh, I guess I don't understand the TikTok uh, generation. But I will tell you, my reactions were horror. Um, I can't imagine anybody using profanity when they refer to uh, learning Talmud. And for the Talmud that I've learned over my years, that I think um, this is one of the more minor issues. When we talk on Talmud, we talk about moral behavior, we talk about how to act properly, and worrying about whether your wife or, or some other woman in your life is putting on makeup, to me, seems rather trivial and uh, loses the... Uh, the impact of how important Talmud is in our life. So I thought it was borderline obscene. Um, I don't understand why uh, this woman is so popular for the type of profanity that she uses teaching Talmud of all things. Um, I've just discussed it. Wow, thank you for your, the clarity of your convictions. Uh, Carol, uh, would, love, uh, would love your voice. And Carol, if you can unmute. I'm trying, okay, there we go. I was trying, I thought I was being rejected. Um, well, um, I thought it was accessible. It was, especially to a younger generation, it was entertaining. It, it made somebody wonder, wow, is that what Tom was about? Maybe I should look into that a little bit more. And it was feminist. I mean, I totally, I kind of, not totally, but I, I don't necessarily agree with Marty on that because it's bringing up real relevant issues that women have a right to do what they what they feel is right with their bodies. So I I I thought it was really really entertaining and and the, yeah and making Talmud accessible even though it is about really out there. I get that it's really out there. Mm. I don't know what the rabbis would think of it, but that's how I feel. Thank you, Carol. Steve Broder. Okay, so I have a, an observation and a question, Wes. Sure. The observation is clearly, Wes, you have to wear much more makeup and you have to swear uh, much more than you're doing currently in order to go viral. So that, okay. that's pretty clear. Um, my question is this, I'm, I don't know her. I'm really curious, uh, who's watching her? Are they formerly Orthodox people who appreciate the um, the notion of Talmud and who these people are? Is it just random? Um, but I'm just curious who her followership is and what else do they do in terms of their Jewish study? Yeah, so one of the, so I can't answer your question, Steve, but what I can tell you is that the Hartman podcast addresses that. And David Svi Kalmer, this media expert that Yehuda Kurtzer and Miriam Anselman are in dialogue with, he points out that this kind of Talmud, short and sweet, two minutes, saucy and honest and, and angry at points, um, and also delivered by somebody who is beautiful, um, radically expands 
the pool of people who care about Thomas, right? Uh, so I don't know who they are and, and the Harvard podcast doesn't actually even know, but, they, but David Svikelner's language is it makes it radically much more available, radically more available that it's, it's out of the yeshiva world. She, she points out that she knows from, she says that people in the yeshiva world are watching her stuff, but it's also people outside the yeshiva world. And one of the consequences of that is that Talmud becomes the, the province of, of, of ordinary people, not just rabbis and rabbinical students in ways that it, it wouldn't have before. Um, so that's, that's the impact. It's a, it, it radically expands what Torah means and who, who gets access to it. It also, and David Svikhelmer also points this out, it radically undermines rabbi power. Like let's say some rabbi would say something like what Marty Paley said, it's inappropriate and profanity and it, it, it's passionate and they shouldn't do it, right? And Kellner points out in this, in the podcast, rabbis lose their power. This is a, a, a radically democratizing move. As a people who wanna take the point, a traditionalist point of view, that it's inappropriate to use profanity, uh, that's just like people are voting with their feet not to heed that. That's what Hartman says in response to your, to your questions. Bill Greenberg. Thank you. Uh, I think that uh, precisely the factors that uh, Marty points to uh, are those that make this so uh, appealing and make it go viral. That is to say, it is uh, uh, outrageous. Uh, intentionally so. Uh, it's, as you just said, Wes, anti-authoritarian. Uh, and uh, it is uh, strongly feminist. And uh, to take a religious text and to use it in this way uh, has a certain brilliance to it that uh, is unappealing to me, but uh, I get it. I get it. Uh, she's saying uh, that you don't have to, uh, that one, she's saying men don't tell me what to do and uh, uh, I'll make my own decisions. And along the way, I'll tell you a bit about the Talmud. Very interesting. Very, very interesting character. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I want to just comment on the, the religious nature of the text and make a case that she makes and that Yehuda and David Svikelner make in it from a religious, let's say you're a traditionalist, let's say that you articulate Marty's posture um, and that you're not necessarily drawn to the sauciness and to the profanity, et cetera. Um, what is it about this just on religious terms that would commend it? And one of the things that, that they all say, and, and I think this is beautiful, is that who's not seen in a tradition in this text, and who's not seen in a traditional interpretation of this text, the wife of Rav Chista, that she's entirely object, right? You have guys making rules about women. That's kind of gross, to be honest with you. In, in my, my personal value, that's kind of gross. The notion that a guy would make a woman a, a rule about when a woman could put on makeup, you know, put it this way, that would not work for my marriage. And it wouldn't work for the people that I know. Um, and then talking about her in her presence like she doesn't exist, also kind of gross. And what, what she makes the case is that by, by doing this TikTok, and, and actually Yehuda Kurtzer is quite articulate about this, she brings to the fore an unseen actor, namely the wife of Rav Krista, who now has identity. And that matters from a religious point of view, because everybody is created but Selim Elohim in the image of God. And how cool is it that somebody who's created the image of God who was not seen is now seen. That's another point that, that he makes. Um, but thank you, Bill. Nancy Connors from Jerusalem or Israel somewhere. No, nope, I'm visiting a friend in I'm visiting a friend in Jerusalem. It's dinner time. Hello to everyone. Um, listen, I, I've been in so many discussions where people are wringing their hands about losing young people and the assimilation and the interfaith marriage. And I think this new emergence is thrilling. And I look forward to uh, 
a lot of people, I, I look forward to seeing how a lot of people are gonna generate enthusiasm uh, and, and what I think comes through for her is affection for the text, real affection and uh, caring about what is said and who says it and what the implications are. So I, I think it's a thrilling uh, emergence of a new kind of uh, tradition. Thank you. Amen. Uh, Joan Ackerstein. Unmuted. I, I thought it was fabulous. I loved it. I, I loved hearing you talk about it, Wes, but I, I loved hearing her talk about it. I was not put off by the profanity. I think it's so important to reach as many people as possible. Frankly, this is not politically correct, but it probably helps that she is a gorgeous young woman. Um, it's very easy to watch her. But one of the things I loved about it is that she declares the rabbi who supported the older woman who wants makeup as her hero. And right. she says, I'm not even changing his words. She tells you, this is really from the real text. I'm, I'm not really even paraphrasing him. This is what he said, and this is my hero. And I, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit about um, going to a conservative summer camp, having been raised really as a reformed Jew. And in summer camp, we went out and we did our services outside and they were led by young people. And we sat boys and girls together and that grabbed me. And, and it was the first time that I said, wow, I think I can, I can go in this direction. And there were probably lots of people watching this today who even had a Hebrew school education and now are saying, this is grabbing me. And who cares how they get there as right. long as they get there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, John, just a couple of things about what you said. First, other than the profanity that she adds, um, she literally quotes the text. Right, so she she right she she literally takes what Rav Chista said to his frenemy, um, and she just adds the profanity that she adds. But otherwise, it's a faithful quote. Um, the the other thing that I want to add, and and it's it's a real question, and it's very funny for me. I, I listened to the Yehuda podcast several times to to get the choicest morsels to share this morning. Is how he and David Svi dance around the fact that she's so beautiful. Um, because it, it's kind of politically not so correct to talk about somebody who's so beautiful and how do you do it? So they use two, two idioms. One is blonde, that she's blonde. And the second one that they seize on is physicality. Um, but one of the open questions is, to, to what extent is the fact that she's as beautiful as a movie star is that a factor in the viral uh, reaction to her video? If she, if she were not, if, if, if I had said the exact same thing or, or if somebody who was not model beautiful said the exact same thing, would it have had that same viral impact or not? And, and what's the role of um, overwhelming physical beauty in the effectiveness of, of teaching? Um, and that's a question that is kind of surfaced and, and they, they leave it with us. Um, Lloyd David. Um, Wes, I loved it. I want to see it again. My understanding of uh, Dr. is every day they take a different part of the Talmud and they talk about it. Right. To me, she, she was talking the language of, of people of her generation. And I would like to see what she does tomorrow from the, the part of the Talmud tomorrow. So she was captivating, not only because of her beauty, but the way she was acting. I was also taken by the, what she was holding in her hand. I thought it was a microphone, but actually it was a brush that you use for putting on makeup. Mm. I mean, she, she, she hid it in a lot of ways. And I think that in many ways she is, drawing people into study Talmud, which yeah. is what this is all about. Yeah. One thing that's, that you, that's kind of implicit I want to tease out, Lloyd, and then we'll take a Judy Sebastian, and then we'll go to the second text, is she delivers her content in two minutes. And that, that's something that we should just talk about for a second, which is, you know, uh, in a pre-social media world, uh, to actually, if you were to ask a traditional yeshiva bacher, how long does it take to do a page of Talmud? Uh, the answer is many hours, many hours. I mean, by the time you do 
the text with with Rashi. That's already hours. Um, and then you throw in Tosafot on the other margin. That's already many hours. And then you start bringing in the you know re, the riff and the rosh and the ron and the achronim and the rishonim and the achronim. It's hours, 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 hours. Okay. Um, if you were to do a traditional daf yomi, um, you know, with the uh, with the cycle now with the social media tools in a traditional yeshiva world, you can usually get a shiur in a half an hour or forty minutes for daf yomi. Hers is radically shorter. It's two minutes. And, and it's just worth noting and, and lifting up the question, is that a net good or a net bad that Daf Yomi, which went from hours to 30 minutes or 40 minutes, is now two minutes? Um, what do you think of it? First of all, it just is. I mean, she's got a lot of likes and a lot of followers. Uh, you could say it's uh, reductionist and oversimplifying, which obviously you can't cover in two minutes what you can cover in 40 minutes or in four hours. But on the other hand, she's got, you know, 57 people thinking about makeup on a, you know, on a Sunday morning. So it, it right. So all of that is part of, of the mix. Uh, Judy Sebastian, last comment on Moe Katan. And then we're going to see what she does with Chagiga. Well, I think that the profanity, though I don't particularly agree with it, um, does appeal to uh, the younger generation. But what I wonder is, what led an Orthodox woman, and you, I mean, I, I don't know how old she is. You can't tell from, from looking at people any longer, uh, but what led an Orthodox woman to go from strict Orthodoxy to profanity so quickly? Uh, and I, I have to agree that her viewers don't, probably don't know that she is, that she was Orthodox before. Mm. They take her at face value. I'm guessing. So Judy, I don't. I I only know what she says in this uh, podcast with with Yehuda and and David Svi. But but the profanity has come up. So I want to just talk for a second about about the the role of profanity. I, I actually love the profanity in this clip, and I'll and I'll tell you why I love it. Um, religion, I think, can get justly critiqued for being removed from how people live and how people feel. I mean, Heschel in his, in his book, which he writes in the 50s, when he's critiquing American prayer is that nothing ever happens at a prayer service that's surprising and nothing ever happens at a prayer service that really affects the heart. Um, and that there's no surprise and you're never really moved. And, and if you roll the film forward, you know, 60 years, Ron Wolfson then writes a similar critique and he says, you never get goosebumps in, in Shul. And, and Wolfson is writing it, um, um, he, he writes it during a season of the Olympics and he says, you know, when you watch the Olympics, this is pre-pandemic, uh, they would tell you a story about an athlete and their heroic struggle and they lost their mother, they lost their father, they had this trajectory and now here they are competing uh, on the world stage and it gives people goosebumps and Ron Wolfson in his book, uh, The Spirituality of Welcome, says you never get goosebumps in shul, so, which means that our emotions are not touched in shul. What I love about the profanity is it's real. But as I say, I would feel angry. If somebody said to Shira, don't put on makeup, you're too old, I would start drawing, dropping F-bombs, no question about it. I mean, maybe I wouldn't if I was like, I had to behave because I was a rabbi, but what I would be feeling inside was a lot of F-bombs. Like, who are you to tell my wife what makeup to put on? I would feel F-bombs, uh, a lot of them. And so that's, right, and that's real. And I think appropriate. So to me, on the profanity, I kind of like that it's real. Um, but I understand it's also shocking, so, Hence the conversation and hence the mixed response that it generated. Uh, Brian Lesky, you wanted to say something. Could, could I could we... I just could I just um respond to that a bit? Yeah, of course, Judy. Yeah. I um I find that um part of the reason, or maybe all of the reason, that we don't get goosebumps in shul is because we are doing it by rote. We don't really pay attention to what it is that we're saying. 
And I had an actual personal experience of this because um, years ago, I was given an aliyah to read the, um, the prayer for the government after, um, after laning. And I read it with emotion, with, um, with understanding of what the text said. Mm. And the congregation, on the other hand, kept rattling on in the same boring way. It's by rote. They weren't paying one bit of attention to what they were saying. Mm. And um, I think that if we had perhaps fewer time constraints on our services, that we made a, a concerted effort to understand what we were saying. Thank you, Judy. That's a very worthy point and a, and a very worthy separate conversation. I appreciate that. appreciate that a lot, Judy. Thank you. I, I want to just take one last comment about um, Miriam and Zovin's TikTok on Moe Katan before we go to Hagiga, where she raises just, I think, the, one of the most important questions of the human condition. Um, and we'll see what the Talmud does and then what she does with it. But Brian Lefsky, you had one last comment about the Moe Katan piece. Um, just one thing I wanted to point out is you talked about it, how it's, um, she distills it down to two minutes. One thing you should point out is, well, she points out in the uh, podcast is that she doesn't do it every day because it's a lot of time to produce these things. Yes. So although she's spending a, a, a large amount of time, she distills it down to two minutes for the production. And I, so I, the time is being spent, but just not in the Havruta. Right. From her point of view, it's not two minutes. It's, it's a lot of time. And just, she talks about how she learns with her own rabbi in order to be able to be knowledgeable enough. But from the point of view of the end user, the consumer of this Torah, it's a two minute requirement. It, it asks two minutes of you. It asks two minutes of you. So let's take a look at Hagiga. Uh, Brian, if you could screen share Hagiga. This is so powerful. Let me give you the context. This is one of the most powerful suyas or discussions, extended discussions in the Talmud, which is, um, I just love this. You could do a whole year on this, which is there are a number of verses that when sages encounter these verses, they weep. Um, they weep. And this is one of those. So Brian, this is 4B3, if you can get me to 4B3. Um, I think if you can go backwards, I think we, um, if you can go up. The preceding page, Brian. And then, and then we can, uh, we just try one more time. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so not that one, it's, it's, it's the next one, that's Moe Katan. The next one, Chagiga, is uh, two pages. It's 4B3 and uh, 5A1. So if we can have 4B3 of Moe Katan, of Chagiga, please. I think we're there, Wes. No, that's, that's, Moe, Katan, that's Moe Katan, Brian. What we need is Chagiga 4B3. The, the one that the I, you had up the first time, Brian, was the right one. Right, but that one, but that one was, it was paid. That the one that you had up a minute ago was the right source, but you gave me page two of the source, and I could we please have page one of that source? Is the there's 4B3 West and 5A1, and okay, we have so what we need is what we need is 4B3. But that's where you were, Brian. We can go back to 4B3 of Hagiga. You, you wanted when, whenever Rob Yosef came to this following verse, right? Exactly, correct. That's where I, okay, that's where I okay. thought I was. One second. Okay, let me, let me get back just, to it. if we can go back to that. Okay. Okay, one second. I'm sorry. Uh, thank you, Brian. We would be nowhere without you. And by nowhere, I mean like for the last two years, we'd be nowhere without you. So thank you so much for your patience and for doing this for us. I think this is where you. Uh, okay, um, so right, so that is this that is the second wait a minute. Right, so that is the second page of this text. If, is do you have a previous page? If not, I'll just read the previous page. If you I, I, I suggest you read the previous page of this. I thought I was okay. showing you the previous page and you didn't want it. <laughs> okay, okay. So 
Oh, you. Ah, I see. Okay, because okay. So here we are. So um, this is the story in Chagiga. Is the context is sages look at a verse and they start to cry, and the verse that makes this rabbi cry is that people die uh, unexpectedly and for no good reason, right? So why is it uh, that uh, you know you, and you might find this when you get the alumni publications of your alma mater. Uh, and you get, uh, you know, every month or however often you get it, and, and you check to see how your classmates are doing. And it turns out that a very fine person that you knew died at a very young age from whatever, and they didn't get to live out the fullness of their years. And this, and, and the sage sees this and starts to weep, okay? So whenever Rav Yosef came to this following verse, uh, he wept, for it is written, there is one who succumbs without justification. Um, he would say, is there anyone who departs this world not at, not at his allotted time? Yes, it is similar to that case of Rav Bibi Barabaye, whom the angel of death frequently visited. Okay, so now you're, you're in the landscape of people who die not in the language of, uh, of, of, um, Kol Nidre, Unatana Tokef, Lo They don't live their full time, not at the right time. So the Gemara relates the story. On one occasion, the angel of death said to his agent, go and bring me Miriam, the braider of women's hair. However, the agent went, right? So the angel of death has an assistant, the assistant angel of death. The angel, the, the agent went and instead brought him Miriam, the caretaker of young children. Right. So you're, the, the Talmud's dealing with what happens when a young mother who's got young kids dies of cancer, leaving, you know, three or four kids who are kids. OK, the angel of death said to his agent, I told you to bring me Miriam, the braider of women's hair. You know, she's 97. The agent said to the angel in reply, if so, I'll show, OK, I'll return this other Miriam, the young mother Miriam, and I'll get the 97 year old braider of hair. The angel of death said, told him, since you've already brought her, let her be numbered among the dead, right? So you see the Talmud kind of grappling with how is it that a, you know, a 33-year-old woman named Miriam who has a bunch of kids could die? And the Talmud here imagines that it must be some cosmic mistake. After hearing the story, Rav Bibi asked the angel of death, but if it was not yet her time to leave, how were you able to take her? So the angel responded. She was holding a poker in her hand and she was extending it into an oven and sweeping out the oven. She then removed the poker from the oven and accidentally rested it on top of her foot. She thus burnt herself and her muzzle was thereby impaired. And thus I brought her, that is I brought her to death. Uh, right. So in other words, a, 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 an accident, a, 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 an accident that, that turned to be fatal. Rav Bibi Barabaye thereupon said to the angel, do you have permission to act in this manner? The angel answered him, is it not written that there is one who succumbs without justification? Right? So how could you possibly explain a cosmic tragedy like this? So there's this verse that says, OK, it happens. Ravibi said to the angel, but it is written elsewhere, a generation goes and a generation comes, which implies that each generation must complete its allotted time before it is replaced, right? I mean, don't take Miriam until she's 97 and she gets to see her children and her grandchildren and her grandchildren's children, um, not when she's 33. But the angel explained, I take those souls along with me until they have completed the generation and only then do I deliver them to Duma. Ravibi said to the angel, be that as it may, what do you do with that person's unfinished years on earth? The angel replied, if there is a young rabbinic scholar who's a forgiving person, I add those years to him and he is the deceased, the deceased replacement. In other words, what you have here is the, the rabbis grappling with unanswerable human conundrums. How do you understand a 33-year-old mother named Miriam dying with three kids? And it must be some cosmic mistake, but it happens. And how do we make sense of it? Well, and you come up with this uh, mythology 
that, that Miriam's years will go to some rabbinic scholar and some other person is gonna live longer, but it's basically, it's a problem. And the framing of the whole thing is that when Rav Yosef comes to this verse that there is someone who dies without justification, he would weep. Um, and it's in the context of sages who weep at verses that express truths that make us weep. That's the Talmud, okay? Uh, Brian, if we can have the TikTok of Miriam Anzovan on this Chagiga. Shalom friends, welcome to Daf Reactions Chagiga 4. In this off, we're gonna check in with our best bud, the angel of death, and find out what's going on in his world of crazy workplace drama. The question is, are there cases where people die before their time for no reason? The Gemara regales us with the story of Rav Bevai Bar Abaye, who was at that time hanging out with the angel of death. So the angel of death had his personal assistant who for the purpose of this video, we will name Chad. The angel of death turned to Chad and said, Chad, can you bring me uh, Miriam, the braider of hair? It's um, her time to go. Instead of the right Miriam, he went out and got Miriam, the one who raises babies. Now the angel of death was like, I hate my job, I hate my job. Chad, this is the wrong Miriam. We've talked about this. I hired you to make my job less stressful. And Chad was like, okay, wow, first of all, toxic work environment. And second of all, if it's that huge of an issue, bring her back to life again. The angel of death said to Chad, fine, never mind, since you've already brought her here, let's just have her stay dead. Now this whole time, Rav Bavai was just sitting there like, what? And he said, are you telling me that you're actually authorized to take people before their actual time? And the angel of death was like, okay, fine. I get around this bureaucratic nightmare by sort of driving their souls around the parking lot until it's their real time to go. And then I pass them on to the angel Duma, who's the manager of the souls of the dead. And I just like take those extra years and, and donate them to a Torah scholar. At this point, I would like to take this opportunity to address uh, the angel of death, Chad, and any other inept minions he currently employs on behalf of myself and my fellow Miriams. Um, we are not all the same. Please check very carefully before you take us away and kill us. Thank you. Hashtag not all Miriams, Chad. Thank you, Brian. We'll take the full screen. Okay. Reactions. What did you think of Miriam's teaching about a Miriam who was taken before her time? And do you think it do you think that it brings out the content and the messaging and the drama of this text? Is it a net contribution to Torah study? Would love your thoughts and comments. Amy, I might call on you to be our first speaker to get us going. And then, um, and then, uh, I, or I could ask it. I mean, I'll-, I'll I, have a, I have a comment. Yeah. I have a comment. If you look at the faces on the screen when she finishes speaking, how many of us are smiling and laughing? And that's great. And one of her comments in the podcast is, she hopes this pushes people to study more Talmud. I mean, it is interesting and fun when you hear her talk about it, a little wacky and especially hysterical when you go back and see that she's not changing the language that much. I mean, she's not changing the substance. She's just adding her little language and her theatrics and her dramatics. So I, I think it's uh, I think it's super interesting. Yeah, I, I wanna say, I mean, you, you, all of you know this, what Amy just said is 100% true in this text as well. She is faithful to the text. She is faithful to the text. I mean, she adds her own little spin. She calls the unnamed angel of death, Chad. She brings in kind of contemporary idiom and resonant, like, you know, Chad, I hired you because, well, wow, it's a toxic work environment. So she adds contemporary idiom and contemporary spin. But the fundamental uh, treatment of what happens in the Talmud is faithfully rendered. Um, and the question is, um, you know, if you study this in the yeshiva, this is hours. When you just heard it, it was two minutes. And is that is that a net net positive for the Jewish people? Um, any other uh, takers on this? And then we'll listen to Miriam and Zovan herself in dialogue with Yehuda and David Svi. Any other people want to share any thoughts about the second text? Marty Paley. 
I'm you know, stealing. Yes, thank you. As I was listening to her, I was stealing myself from more profanity, and luckily I didn't hear any. Uh, but I thought her take was very interesting and, and kind of uh, upbeat. And uh, as, as you said, I think it was true to the text. And I thought she was very entertaining for two minutes. And um, I've changed my opinion. I still don't like the profanity part. But on the other hand, that this was a great uh, two-minute segment that I think would um, get a lot of people interested, perhaps, in studying more. Thank you, Marty. Carol Schauer. Okay. Now you're muted. Now you're unmuted. Sorry, I have a very quick, slow computer. Um, why am I always following Marty? I don't know. But in any case, I just had a comment on the, oh, you can't see me. I just had a comment on the net net. Um, Paula Hartman, I think it's a both and. I think that it makes it like I, I guess I kind of said it before. It makes it so you you grab an interest, but then it is important, I think, to study deeper. It face, you know, what you're hearing in the two minute TikTok, but to then really go through the text and 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 you know have a, a deep deep understanding of it. That. Great, thank you, Carol. Michael Gardner. Hi, uh, thanks, Wes. Yeah, um, I fully endorse uh, this 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 approach. Uh, I, I agree with uh, with Marty to the extent that I wouldn't want it to be the sole approach. I wouldn't want it to be the sole source of learning, but as an additional source, as an and rather than an or, I think it's just uh, fantastic. On this last bit. I'm thinking I can only imagine, you know, Michelle uh, in your Talmud class and on the Bimmer and generally takes the worst texts and always tries to find some saving grace in them. And I'm real curious to hear what Michelle would have to say about this particular TikTok learning or the piece in general. And unfortunately, with something this short, you don't, you don't get the benefit of that. I often don't agree with Michelle, but I do value her voice. Uh, but overall, I think this is a tremendous ad. And um, I hope um, in the future, you'll think about doing this two minute stuff in the Talmud class to give a little, uh, a little uh, different view of things. Yeah, definitely. Michael, let me ask a question. I mean, she is dealing with uh, really the hardest question of the human condition, which is, you know, I mean, Harold Kushner's question is when bad things happen to good people, what do we do about it? That's plenty hard. But an even harder question, I think, that's not what this Talmud Sugya is asking, when bad things happen to good people, what do you do about it? It's actually asking the why question. Why do bad things happen to good people? How do we understand the fact that bad things happen to good people? You know, it's a separate question, now what do we do? That, that's not the issue here. This is like, if God is real, that's an implicit premise in this. It's unspoken, but it's an implicit premise. If God is real, why do bad things happen? Um, and the answer is uh, all this narish kind about the angel and the chad and this and that, the, the, the makes a mistake and an accident. And how would you describe Miriam's posture being named Miriam? What, what, what's, the, what's the message that she delivers in two minutes with her entertaining way on this really hard human question? I think she does it beautifully. I think um, for all the Michigas about the angels and this, that, and the other thing, I think her bottom line message, which I think has to resonate, is that this horrible stuff is purely random. It is just random. And you can't uh, find some deep meaning in it. You can't certainly can't find any justice in it. I'm not sure you can find evil in it. Uh, it's just random, and I think it, you, it's it's hard to ascribe particular characteristics to to randomness. It's like lightning striking. I mean, you know, we don't say lightning striking is evil. It's just random stuff that happens, and you just have to accept that. And I think, to that extent, I think her TikTok does that beautifully. Yeah, and I would just add one last point about this. As a as a rabbi, he teaches this stuff as best I can. And it just really with a lot of admiration. I always find giving sermons or 
classes about heavy stuff usually doesn't work because it's too heavy. People don't like heavy talks, heavy sermons, heavy speeches. It's too heavy. They have enough heavy in the world. And what I really salute with this one is she talks about ultimate heavy in a way that you can hear it, that you're not exhausted by it, that you're not turned off by it. Like she encounters ultimate heavy, but, but, but she does it in a way that we can hear. So with that, I want to just bring in, um, uh, Brian, if you can play uh, the first uh, clip of, of her. Um, and what, and what she's talking about here, just the context is Yehuda's asking her about um, the reaction to the first clip on Moe Katan when she uses some of her profanity to describe the rabbi who critiques the other rabbi's wife. Um, and um, and it, of course, there's a lot of reaction and a lot of feelings. So Brian, if you can read that, do the first clip from pages uh, six uh, to seven. There are a lot of people who have used the internet and different apps and different media to teach Dafyomi, but something about this activated a different kind of response. What do you think the variables are? Yeah, so firstly, I would like to make one important distinction that I always think of myself, and again, this is just my perspective. I know people externally view it differently. I am reacting to what I encounter. I am not approaching it as a way of teaching. I am sharing my authentic and real reactions. That's part of it. I will say from what I have read, the factors that really got people in that video were several fold, as you mentioned. One, I am a woman. Two, I'm blonde. Apparently that really mattered. I don't know why. Three, the fact that I was reacting in a very impassioned way that used profanity. And I do not retract that one <laughs> iota. And I was speaking about something that happened so very long ago, but had made me feel very viscerally anger and also pride. And in that conversation that I was encountering in that DAF. And I also believe that having it done so briefly and in the way that I was doing it, that might've been a bit of it too. It was such a bite size. And that's the thing about viral content. If it's more than 30 seconds, you're screwed. That's really it. If you can get to 30 seconds, it's a miracle. Yeah. Um, but from what I saw, the feedback was, why is a woman doing this? Two, does she know what she's talking about? She appears to be blonde and she's wearing makeup and she has a red headband on. And three, oh my God, she's swearing. She has desecrated the entirety of Judaism. Uh, she's going to Gehenna now. Okay. So, um, you know, Yehuda asked her, why the storm? Why did it create such a controversy? Her self understanding of it is she's a woman, she's a blonde woman, and she speaks saucily and with profanity, and that resulted in the Sturmendrang. Any, any comments on that? Just interesting to hear her self perception. Anyone want to add anything to that? Okay. Um, I want to. That this next talk, uh, this next clip is going to be about what is the net impact of of her class, her TikTok getting thousands and thousands of views. So David Svi is this expert in Jewish media, and he talks about what the big uh, impacts of this are going to be on the whole ecosystem of Torah delivery. If a lot of people including people who didn't used to, you know, who don't go to the yeshiva, don't take in a class, don't do the 45 minute thing. If now they're doing it in two minute clips, what's the impact of this on the whole Torah ecosystem? So Brian, if you'll pick up with page eight, Yehuda in dialogue with David Svi. So David Svi, in your piece that you published in JTA about this, you said, quote, a new way of talking about Jewish texts and Holy Scripture has come of age with the internet, despite flying under the radar for many traditionalists. This form of communication about Torah is already fully developed, and it's time for it to be taken seriously as a genuinely new way of engaging with Jewish ideas. So maybe you could help describe what you think that is, because your observation is this is not simply one individual who's doing something interesting on TikTok. This actually represents a much larger shift in terms of how traditional texts are engaged with that needs to reshape how we think about Jewish traditional texts with the availability of this media. 
Yeah. So I think there's a couple of ways of approaching that. One is to tell the story of Jewish text in the 20th and 21st century as one about increasing and radical availability. There has been a huge amount of work put into making sure that as many Jewish texts as possible are available not just to people who have access to yeshivot and years of study and happen to be male and all that stuff, but can access it in any language that they can from anywhere that they can. And I think this is, um, it's not just that every religion has been doing this. I think Judaism in particular has spent quite a bit of time merging technological prowess and traditional Torah study such that it is now possible for literally anybody who has access to English to go online and, and access any part of the Talmud. And that has had a huge impact on the availability of these texts. It's not just that the internet happened before the internet as well, but it means that there has been a kind of radical decentralization of authority. And it's not, it's not just a story of the internet, right? Like every time there's a new technology that comes around, rabbis get worried that their authority is going to get lost and they're always right. Yeah, so I, I love this piece because it gives us some analysis. Um, anybody with a screen anywhere can access any piece of Talmud at any time and do it in a two-minute TikTok. Um, zero barrier to entry. All you need is a screen and a button to click. Um, radical availability and radical decentralization. It means rabbis have much less authority. Rabbis as gatekeepers and curators, much, much less. And people have much more power. Is I mean, this feels like an obvious good. This is an obvious benefit. Anyone have any concerns? What's your reaction to David Svee's kind of a big trend lines that he sees? Anyone have any concerns or is this all good, all good news? Um, Jerry Jacobs or Rose, Ruth Rose. And then Michael Bono. Yeah, um, in general, I think I remember <clears throat> a generation ago when I started wearing a tallis in the 70s or late 60s and the, um, the uproar about that was unbelievable. And that was in Nashville, Tennessee. And at the, in the rise of feminism, I mean, it, there was a, sim, a parallel uproar to that at that time. So it's, this, it wasn't technology, but it was an inclusiveness. Right, it just is, and it turned out to be great. I guess it depends who you ask, but in our community, it turned out to be great. Uh, Michael Bonin. Uh, one thing that seems to underlie a lot of the reaction is that the, the rabbis at the Talmud were some kind of prudes and uh, uh, that wasn't the case. I mean, they dealt with a lot of reality. They they used very colorful epithets when they were referring to each other. Uh, and actually, if you look at the, the first section we studied, the immediate preceding paragraph referring to um, different types of uh, adornments, they mentioned mascara and they mentioned rouge. And they also mentioned uh, shaving the uh, genital areas. So, I mean, they were, they were dealing with real stuff. And uh, I don't think that we should think that this is something untouchable for us. I just to connect that with the anger and the epithet and the and the sauciness and the profanity, I feel like reading this in the year 2022, the notion of men making edicts about when women can shave and where they can shave and how they can shave and what they can put on and when they can put it on and when they can put it on and where they can put it on, that's just deeply offensive to a modern and deeply offensive. I mean, I hate that. Just hate that. And, and, I, and I, I really appreciate her fresh voice calling out the fact that it's a patriarchal system that really um, is a turnoff to the modern sensibility. Um, so, I mean, it, I think you're right, the rabbis of the Talmud do it. And I think it's right that having a, a contemporary feminist read is a, is a, healthy, is a healthy thing. Uh, speaking, speaking of which, um, I want to bring back this issue of the religious resonance of that voice in terms of seeing Rav Chista's wife. Uh, Brian, if you can read that clip on page 16. Well, I think it's more than that. And I would give you more credit for this. When you taught the piece in the viral yeah. video about yeah. Rav Chista and Rav Chista's wife and the debate between two sages about whether or not she can wear makeup, what you granted to the learner 
was a humanizing of a set of male characters that is hard for two cis straight men chavrutas learning in a traditional Beit Midrash to access, to think about what is going on on a human level between those two people. What's the relationship with his wife? And where you really humanize is that Rav Chista's wife is hanging out in the story. She's actually a character in the story who is invisible in the context of a legal dispute unless you actually surface it and name it. It's not just how do I create these texts to be accessible to a new body of learner. It's actually how do I awaken certain aspects of these texts that have always been there, but for a whole variety of reasons that are related to both how it is transmitted and who is doing the transmitted, the text itself can't fully unfold in the way that it's supposed to. Well, I want to give credit to Rav Chista here, first of all, because when I first read the initial critique of his wife, my first words was, oh my God. And when I got to his response, the first words of his response are, oh my God. And I was like, oh, very little actually separates our response here. And if you look at what I actually say, the speech that I give in that video about even if your mother is standing at the edge of her grave, that is from his actual words. Mm -hmm. The only things I really added to that speech was the profanity and the words, you know, misogynistic and ageist. That was it. Yeah. Everything else, Rav Chista said. And that's what really made it like an immediate, ah, I know this so well. How dare a man speak about another man's wife. She's right there, dude. This is so incredibly rude. So everyone who's writing to me is saying, oh, you're so rude the way you speak about these great men. I'm like, no, no, he disrespected this lady, okay? Mm -hmm. She is just as worthy of respect as anybody else. And so Rev Chist is jumping to his wife's defense and I felt the same way. So here's a question I wanna ask, which is to me, it just feels obvious that this is healthy, sanguine, and a good corrective. It's a, uh, you know, this is a challenging patriarchal tradition. This is a challenging spot in a challenging patriarchal tradition. And you have a contemporary feminist voice that adds as a corrective to it, um, albeit with some sauciness, but as we've discussed, uh, well-placed sauciness. Am I missing something? Is any, are there any concerns uh, about uh, something being lost with this contemporary feminist voice um, to an ancient patriarchal text. Anyone have any concerns that have not yet been voiced that we should if we're going to have a full and thoughtful conversation? Well, that will be the next clip that we listen to. Where, um, um, Brian, if you can um, do the text on bottom of page 17 and 18. Um, that is going to be the, the basically the um, next to last, our penultimate uh, clip is going to ask that question. What do we lose with this kind of a fresh voice delivered with this kind of a fresh medium? But I understand the fear of losing something or having something you love be disgraced or insulted. But I think that does not quite grasp what I truly feel about it or what people may discover about it. That fear says to me, we don't trust Jews enough to engage with this and not disrespect it, which is kind of a weird thing to say. We want people to engage with it, but not really because then you might have opinions about it. And we don't want that to happen because if your opinions don't agree with our opinions, we'd rather you wouldn't learn at all. We have to believe that this is strong enough to outlast someone's look at it and someone's critique of it to find within it the things that are holy. And within the Talmud itself, it already contains the profound and the profane. It already contains things that I know people don't want me to talk about because they are hurtful because they are things that we don't recognize as acceptable behavior in today's day and age. I understand that. And I do understand the importance of placing things in their historic context and not extrapolating outwards to Jews of the modern era, no matter what level of observance or a group they have affiliated with. But I do believe that we can trust that there is enough in here of profound substance and meaning that you can look it in the face, see what we would now think of as flaws in individual thinking amongst the sages, 
they're not right on everything all the time. That's just a fact, people. Mm-hmm. And say there's still something here that's so great and so powerful. I'm going to learn it. Great. So I think this is actually this is a perfect last spot to end on, which is that to what does it mean to really love Torah? To really love Torah does not mean to just worship at the altar of Torah and justify everything that every character says, every rabbi is so wise, every biblical character is so pure. That's not real love. Real love is being able to argue back, to argue, to dissent, um, to criticize, and then to find, uh, one, and then once you're having that honest assessment, what's good and true and what's not good and true, and being able to know and articulate the difference, that's love. That's loving Torah. And that's what she does. She, you know, she, she really loves and celebrates Rav Chista, and she does not really love and celebrate the frenemy uh, the, who says that. Um, and I think that is a very beautiful uh, point to end on, that um, what Torah wants to cultivate from us is our mind and our conscience, um, and that we should bring questions to the text and ask to hold the text accountable, not only for its own context, the shop, but to our own values. When we see uh, a text like the one that went viral of men dictating when women can shave and put makeup on, that we're, it, it's not disrespectful. It's in fact, a sign of respect to name that that's not how we do things. And that's not how we think about things. Um, so I wanna just say, I love, uh, her Torah, um, you know, the, the shul programming year, believe it or not, in May is already pretty much over. The weather's too, you can't compete with the weather. I can tell you that in the fall, uh, we're gonna invite Miriam and Zovan to Temple Emanuel and Eliza Berger is gonna be in dialogue with her. Um, and that will be in person. Uh, actually, Miriam has already done an event for the Yasod community that uh, the 20 somethings and 30 somethings that Eliza works with. Uh, but we want more for Torah. And I kind of like the idea of, I, I agree with everyone's point about it's, it's a good and not an or, but to bring her Torah as part of uh, the voices that we hear um, that make Torah more accessible and more real. Um, so uh, thank you guys for learning this. want to thank Yehuda and David Svi and Miriam for a really thoughtful thing. And as we approach Shavuot, May all of us grow in the many ways in which we receive Torah. And let's do it together. Thank you guys so much. Have a great day.